I want to say it again. Remember that it, we everyone knows and no one ever attacks that, that, right? The Old Testament is the Word of God. The New Testament it is too, right? We know even Peter himself, you know, tells us at the end of Second Peter that all the writings of the New Testament, you know, are Scripture. So we got to remember that when God, when we read this that Mike's about to preach for us, Lord, it is our Lord teaching us. Tell us what we need to know. Very practical book. But amen. I mean, the Lord cares for us so much, but sometimes he just uh, wants us to know things. <laughs> amen, as always. So let us read 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 19. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let us pray. Father, again, we just come before you and give you all blessing and glory and honor and power and praise your mighty, holy, awesome name. We thank you so much for all your blessings. We thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your help in all things. We thank you that you are transforming us in the image of your Son. We thank you for your truth, your word, Lord. Lord, now pray, give us all ears to hear. Help us to focus, Lord. And as even write for us in Scripture and left it in Scripture, pray, Lord, enlighten our understanding that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and be pleasing unto you, unto all good works. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now that's what I like to hear. Amen. That's why we, you know, as a family integrated church, which is what we should be, amen, amazing, isn't it, when sometimes people will visit our fellowship and they'll say, well, the kids are sitting in here with you. Yeah, yes. <laughs> why would we leave our home as a family? <laughs> good morning, good morning. Why would we leave our home as a family and open our doors in the church parking lot and then come into the house of God and then split up? <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't make a whole lot of biblical sense to me. And so, so thankful for, to hear them singing. Was it last week? I think Kent was belting it out, or was it Wednesday night? I don't remember. Uh, maybe it was last Sunday. Just these young children just all around us. It's such a blessing, amen? amen. Such a blessing to us. Well, last Lord's Day morning, brethren, we had by the providence of God the good pleasure to sit, as I call it, in the Holy Ghost classroom. Amen? Because that's really what this is. Howard said it, right? Amen? The, God's Word as it goes out. And the Holy Spirit must apply, or there's, as one pastor said, he's got a shake or there's no shaking. This is just 
the reality of it. Amen. We were being tutored by him, amen, through the word of God, regarding our Christian lives in relation to God. You remember that. It was first vertical, if you will, and then or horizontal, then it was vertical. Last week it was man to God, woman to God, in other words. How we indeed behave towards God. How much we trust God in all circumstances and everything, amen. All circumstances in every place. Even though, you remember we saw this, that the paradox of sorrow may be present. And so you can be sorrowful and yet rejoice in the Lord. Amen. And so this is what we saw last week. He, in verse 16, Paul told us to rejoice every more. That is a good and holy and good practice and exercise. Amen. That is a good way for us to be towards our heavenly Father. To rejoice evermore. He said in verse 17, we're to pray without ceasing. You remember this, amen? I mean, it's good for us to remember. My hair is gray, so i got to remind myself. It's good for us, brethren, to remember this, to pray without ceasing. And again, a most holy and positive exercise, amen? Something that we should indeed be doing as we behave this way towards our Heavenly Father. In verse 18, you remember, he told us to give thanks when? In everything. And again, let me just remind us again. We all should give thanks to the Lord for everything. Yes, that's not what our text said. You remember, in everything. That's different. There's for everything and in everything. And what does that mean? Again, in all circumstances, in all things that come into our lives, we should always give the Father thanks. Now, as the Bible is so good at doing, it's perfect at doing it, it tells us here, these are some good holy practices that you should do. <laughs> this morning, Paul, if you will, he shifts in our text. You'll notice that. He shifts from telling us those good, positive, and holy exercises that we should be doing towards the Father. He shifts now towards the Holy Ghost. And he said, these are some things that we should not practice. These are some things that we should not participate in. These are some things that we should not be a party to concerning our relationship with the Holy Ghost. And again, this is so important in our text as we consider this this morning. Paul here in verses 19 through 22 addresses our Christian lives in relation to God the Holy Ghost. In other words, how we behave towards the Holy Ghost. Amen? I mean, many times I think we, we, we think of the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost of God, as some entity that's out over here. No, actually He's a person. He is the sovereign third person of the Trinity who indeed is your vicar of Christ. He is the one who, when Christ left, He took what? The place of Christ. He comes when you believe on him, and he comes and lives inside of you. Think of that for a moment, how personal that is, that when one trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you and makes you a holy temple unto God. Think of that for a moment. And so what Paul's going to do, he's going to address this morning, again, how we behave towards the Holy Spirit of God. And this, brethren, as we consider this, is both individually and, as we look this morning, the ecclesia, the gathering together in the local assembly. This is a two, if you will, this is kind of a two-sided coin, how we do it individually and also how we do it as 
a corporate body. Listen there, if you would. Look at verse number 19. Look at the word, if you will, these things. Quench not the spirit. That's an act and something, brethren, we don't want to be a party to. Look at verse number 20. Despise not prophesying. You see that there again. These are acts. Or, or, or that we are not to participate in when it comes to the Spirit of God. And again, we're going to kind of flush this out and see, well, what does that mean exactly? Now, as we all know, brethren, verse 19 tells us not to quench the Spirit of God. That's what it says. And as we all know, as finite men, okay, finite men, finite beings do not have the capability to supersede, and let me just say this, I know man thinks he's the center of the universe, that he's all-powerful, he is not. Man in his finite being cannot supersede, set aside, replace in power, authority, or effectiveness the infinite sovereign third person of the Trinity of God. Now let me just say this to you. The Trinity of God is a glorious thing. The, The Spirit of God, I should say. The Spirit of God, do you know he bookends the Scriptures? Do you know that he is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 at the very beginning, and he's at the end in Revelation chapter 22, the very end of it? He bookends all of Scripture. His working, what he is doing, his, if you will, his position within the Godhead. It's a stunning thing. Now, consider this for just a moment. The Holy Spirit of God is mentioned 88 times in the Old Testament. 264 times in the New Testament. He is all throughout, threaded throughout. His work, we saw it in the book of Acts. He's moving and working and doing those things that the scripture calls and says he will do. He's referenced over 60 times in the Gospels, 57 times in the book of Acts, 132 times in the epistles. He is central and theme through all of it. It's an amazing thing. So the question for before us this morning is, what does it mean to quench the spirit of God, who is sovereign in his work and is indeed eternal in his existence. What does it mean when Paul said, do not quench the spirit of God? If he's sovereign and he's working and doing his work, what does it mean for us not to do that? Well, let's define the word quench. Listen carefully. The word quench there literally means to stifle, to still, to dampen, to suppress activities. This is very, very important for us to understand this. A true believer, brethren, can at times, much to their own detriment, and to the detriment of your brothers and sisters, amen, dampen and stifle the Holy Ghost's campaign in your own life, and then also in the life of the local assembly. What do we mean by that? Well, it's an amazing thing when you define this and you consider this again. The Holy Ghost is sovereign. He is God. He moves and does as he pleases. So how would one dampen the Spirit of God? How would one in his own life and in the church assembly itself, how would you stifle and dampen that? Well, we have many examples. This is the glorious, beautiful thing about this. Staying within holy writ. It tells us what it is. Let me just show you. We're going to be this morning hopping back and forth a little bit between the Old Testament, which is the inspired, preserved Word of God, and the New Testament, which is the inspired, preserved Word of God. Amen? And the two are systematically tied together. So I want you to see the people of God. It is quite amazing when you consider the nation of Israel. I want us to think for just a moment about them. 
You remember what God did for them when he took them out of Egypt. <laughs> you remember what they saw. All of the miracles. All of these things that God did. And they knew it was God. He's there in the cloud. He's there in the pillar. He's there doing all these things. And they go across the sea. And Pharaoh's army drowns in the Red Sea. And they're standing there. And Moses disappears for how many days, brethren? Forty days. In fact, he even addresses that. He says, you saw what I did. You saw what I did. You were part of what I did. And what did you do? You simply turned away. Amazing, brethren, when you consider that, what the people of God will do. And I want you to see how the psalmist describes this idea of quenching the spirit. How one does that. Look at Psalms chapter 78. I want you to see this with me together this morning. A couple of words that are certainly going to stick out to us in this text. Psalms chapter 78, again, Old Testament, New Testament, amen? This is something that the people of God must be very careful of doing. Again, he is a person. He lives inside of you. Listen, he sees everything you see. He hears everything you hear. He sees everything you do. Think of that for a moment as he's living inside of us, the Spirit of God. Well, let me show you here how the, the child of God can do this. How can we quench the Spirit of God? Look at chapter 78 of Psalms. A couple of words come to our minds. Again, he's addressing this very issue when he took them out of Egypt. And I want you to see how they irritated, how they limited God. And the word limited isn't what you think. Nobody limits God. Look at here, if you would, verse number 30, uh, 37. Look there, if you would. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he away his anger and did not stir up all his wrath. Why? Because they were constantly scratching, they were constantly scraping, they were constantly irritating God by what they were doing. This is how one does it. It isn't just, sometimes it is a big thing, but sometimes there's this constant itching. You ever have, I've been dealing, as many of you know, with, a, with an itch, a rash. And it's just amazing that I'll be sitting there one minute and I'm fine, and the next minute I feel like scratching the face. It's a constant thing. This is what the people of God were doing. Now look what the Bible says here. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. How oft did they, what? Provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert. I want you to see. Yea, they turned back and tempted God. Look at this next word. And limited the Holy One of Israel. Now that word limited that's used there. We've seen provoke, they grieved, and they limited. This idea, this word limited here, literally in the Hebrew means to scratch or to constantly scrape. And this is what they did. You remember, brethren. God takes them out of Egypt, and what do they do? They complain about what? They complain about their food. They complain about what they were drinking. They complain, they complain, they complain. They were constantly scratching and testing and provoking God. And yet in his glorious grace, he says, I, time and time again, I didn't destroy him. This is the idea. This is how one, a Christian, how one, a true believer, can indeed quench the spirit of God. It is a constant type of, of thing that takes place. 
Look here at Isaiah 63. Just a couple of them here this morning. Look at Isaiah 63. They grieved God. They limited him. They scratched in the wilderness. You see that and we understand that. Look at Isaiah chapter 63. Again, as we look here together to define what does it mean to quench the Spirit of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 63. And again, Old Testament, New Testament, it is a thread that is woven throughout. Look at verse number 8. Isaiah 63, look at verse number 8. He said, for he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their what? Their Savior. Brethren, the grace of God, as I say over and over again, <laughs> the grace of God really has in the last probably five years in my own life as I've gotten older, has really come to the forefront. Brethren, can I ask you, he's our savior, and yet the way we live sometimes is we quench the spirit of God. Have you itched God? Have you irritated God? Yes, we have, and yet he's our savior. Look what it says there, brethren. Verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Listen to verse 10. But they rebelled and what? They vexed his Holy Spirit. Do you see that there? Their Savior, God's grace, just becomes greater and greater and greater as you see this. He vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to the beat. Look at this, a double woe. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy, number one, and fought against them, number two. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within them? Again, we see the people of God, those who were believers, who were constantly scraping and scratching and, and, and grieving God. The Spirit of God. I should say. Look at Acts chapter 7. Again, just a couple of them here in the New Testament. Now, we looked at this many, many moons ago, but I want you to see another way that one can quench the Spirit of God by resisting Him. God is sovereign in the Spirit, but I'm telling you, you do and we can resist Him, and we do. You ever had, <laughs> I have my own life experiences. Have you ever been maybe out somewhere or standing somewhere and the Spirit of God tells you, and He does, He gives you an unction to go and speak to that person or to go and say something to that person? I did this myself in a, in a store, walking through the store with a shopping cart in a, well, I, I'm not sure what the terminology is, a transvestite, that's what you want to call him, a trans, here comes his dude with a mustache and a beard dressed like a woman. And I went right by him, and the Spirit immediately said, go and speak to that person. <laughs> you know what I did? I shook, and I stammered, and I rumbled, and I stumbled, and I tumbled, hanging on to my shopping cart. I resisted what God was telling me to do, what the Spirit of God was saying for me to do. I resisted it, and finally I gave in. And by the time I gave in, he was gone. A stunning thing. However, just let me remind you of this. Because I was disobedient doesn't mean that if he is a lost sheep, somebody else won't be. 
His salvation isn't based on what I did or didn't do. But I'm saying in that example, I resisted the Spirit when he clearly gave me the unction to go. And this is what we see again. We quench the Spirit when we resist the Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 7. Look at verse number 49. Look there if you would. Acts chapter 7, look at verse number 49. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Stephen here now bringing the good news. Verse 51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Do you always what? Resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did so do you. So yes, brethren, there is a time and can be a time in the Christian's life when we are given an unction by the Spirit of God and we resist him. That clearly happens. In fact, we grieve him. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Again, just to lay the groundwork. These are ways in which the Christian grieves and quenches the Spirit of God. Again, sovereign Holy Ghost who performs his work, who is eternal. We do indeed and can indeed do these things. This is what Paul is telling them not to do. Do not be a participant in grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit of God. Look there at Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. We, again, know this verse well. These are just a couple. There's, can I use the terminology? There's a plethora. (laughs) Brethren, if you look in scriptures, look at verse number 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. That word grieve there really means to offend, to displease, to provoke, to make sorrowful. It's an amazing thing. Vexing means to irritate, to trouble, to agitate by little provocations. And this is what I'm talking about. This is how sometimes one lives. There's a little provocation here. There's a little itch here. And this is how one then quenches the Spirit of God when we do these things. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, do not despise his operations, either in yourselves or in your brethren. Do not quench him by neglect. Remember what Paul told Timothy? We, can't, we don't have time to go there in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Neglect not the Spirit of God that is in you. Spurgeon says here, you know, neglect, uh, uh, do not quench him by neglect, much less by open opposition. So again, we see here, Paul is warning the brethren, he's warning us, do not quench the Spirit of God. And these are some of the ways, biblically, that we do this. Look at the second knot back in our text. Look there, if you would, at verse number 20. He tells him, first of all, do not to quench not the Spirit. And again, we've looked, there's many ways that the believer can do that. Look at verse number 20. Despise not prophesyings. Now again, brethren, uh, verse 20 and verse 21 and verse 22 and verse 19, they're all tied together. So he says here again, despise not prophesying. So it's clear from the context as we read this that Paul is giving them a word of warning not to despise the preaching of God's word. It appears, brethren, as we look at the text, that the same problem that exists with us today existed in the first century. Can we say that? Paul's telling them, do not despise the preaching of God's word, which is very, very important. In fact, brethren, just a little observation. 
that I've had and that I've been given and thought about over the last couple years especially. Expositional preaching has been especially targeted. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but you know, this kind of preaching by modern ministers who believe, now again, brother, <laughs> this is it. Churches who are standing by the word of God, who are preaching the word of God, who believe in the word of God, are shrinking. They're getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Yes, they are. I've looked it up. I looked at the numbers. Bible-believing churches are shrinking by the dozens. People are fleeing out the doors of Bible-believing churches. It's an amazing thing to behold and watch. It really, really is. But what's happened is, these modern ministers say we must tell stories. We must tell it the world's way if we want the world to hear. This is their theology. This is what they're saying. In fact, Calvin Miller of the Beeson Divinity School said this, Since we are a story-soaked culture, to preach in any other way is just not going to attract people. <laughs> You're right. You're right. We're, we're not going to attract a lot of people. You know what I mean? Even, even as you look at some of the preachers in the 60s, what they were saying. <clears throat> One of them said, when God's the only attraction, very few will come. Yes, that's true. It's an astounding thing to consider. In fact, it is said elsewhere here, another quote, any professional, any advertiser, listen, brethren, this is what I walked out of years ago up in Minot, a Rick Warren business growth concept. Listen, he says, any professional, advertiser, teacher, politician, entrepreneur, athlete, or minister, <laughs> he throws that minister right in there with him. A minister's not an advertiser. A minister's not an entrepreneur. He's a preacher of the word of God. That's what a minister is. Listen to what he says. We'll be valued for the ability to come up with stories that captivate the audience. Now, brethren, please, please, this is so important to us. That's what's happening. It, what's happening is what Spurgeon said would happen. That it won't be long. It won't be long. And it'll be the clowns preaching to the goats instead of the preachers preaching to the sheep. And this is exactly what's happened. This is what Paul is warning against. He's again warning against it, against doing these kinds of things. That word despise is exactly what many are doing. Despise means to scorn, to disdain, to have a lowest opinion of. Remember, we looked at that. Paul already said it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says to keep yourself from fornication. He who despises that despiseth God. The idea there is having God in a low view and opinion. Paul is saying here, do not despise the preaching. Do not have a low view of God's word. Do not have a low view of preaching. That word prophesying is literally a message from God. That's what that word means. It means to preach, to instruct in doctrines, to in interpret and explain the sacred scriptures. This is what the prophesier of today's church age does. 
He looks at the Word of God and he tries to preach it and explain it to the sheep that they might hear it. Now there certainly were occasions, was there not, brethren, over and over and over again in the Old Testament and even here as we look at this that there was some prophesying. There was some message from God that wasn't written down yet. Yes, there was. But we're going to give those kinds of things a test. And that's what we must always do. We must always do that. The spirit, Paul says, may be quenched when the preacher does not pronounce the message he has been given or when others prevent him from doing so. This is so important, brother. And again, we see this. We see this again with God's preachers of old. And I want you to see Jeremiah. I want you to see what happens when the preacher of God, who is a true preacher of God, a prophesier of God, bringing the words of God, the words of the Lord, right, like I told Howard, right? I mean, none of this stuff is made up in their own minds. The Bible says over and over again to every prophet, Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to this person, and they were to then, what, disseminate the word of God to the, to the people. And I want you to see this. Look what happens when a true preacher who's been called by God tries to quench the preaching. Let me show you what happens. In fact, Jeremiah is a good example of that. Look at Jeremiah with me, if you would, this morning. Jeremiah chapter 9. And again, I want to lay out the groundwork for Jeremiah. Anybody remember how many years Jeremiah preached? Anybody remember? It was 49 years. Jeremiah preached for 49 years, and he was known as what? Everybody knows this. He was known as the weeping prophet. Look at chapter 9. It says it right there. Verse number 1. Oh, that my head uh, were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He was called the weeping prophet because he preached for 49 years. He preached what God told him to preach, and there were zero converts. Look at verse number, uh, if you will, verse number 10. He says it again. For the mountains will I take up a weeping and a wailing for the inhabitants of the wilderness, a lamentation, because they are burned up so that no one can pass through them. Neither can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the fowl and the heavens and the beasts are fled. They are all gone. So Jeremiah here is weeping over the preaching of the people to the people and their refusal to listen to what he's saying. And then what does he do? Look at Jeremiah chapter 20. He's preaching along. I want you to see what happens when a true preacher of God tries to quench, tries to quench the preaching of the word. It isn't possible, brethren. When God calls a man to preach his word and he's faithful in it, I don't care what you do. You can stick him in a box. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to do what many preachers of old did. Just like our good brother there, that uh, the, the Pilgrim's Progress gets put in, in jail and he preached to more people when he was in jail than he ever preached any other time. You can stick him in a box, and this is what will happen. Look at Jeremiah chapter 20. Look at what the Bible says. Look at verses 8 and 9. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. He's preaching the word of God and it was made a reproach. The people were not listening or hearing. Verse 9, then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. Can you imagine a preacher saying that? I'm not going to preach anymore. I'm done. But look what happens. It cannot be helped. 
When the word of God is in the man, when it comes out by the spirit of God, it cannot be stopped. Look at verse, the rest of the verse. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. There it is. That's a, a glorious example of what happens when, the word, when God really calls a man to preach. And when a man is serious about the word of God. When he's serious about not quenching the spirit of God when he preaches. Again, brethren, that's the beauty here. In our, and I believe in our fellowship. That the word of God is not fettered because we're scared to say the word of God. I don't care if it's Dean, myself, Howard, any man, all the men who preach here at our conference. None of them were fettered by the fear of that man, what man is going to think about them concerning them preaching the word of God. They all believed it. They all cling to it. They all cleave to it, which we're going to see here in a moment, that that is such an important part of what we do. And Paul is saying to the brethren, this is what you must not do. Do not do not despise. Do not think and have a low view of God's word. You know what the Bible says. The word of God. Again, I don't need to uh, go over the course again and again. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. This is important, brethren. This is why when you're in a church who's not flipping with every wind of doctrine who's not scared to say like Jeremiah, just preach the truth, not afraid to depend upon what the word of God is going to do and not what I'm going to do. This is where you end up. Now, again, as we look at this, one must be careful. And I'm just going to say this. One must be careful. Now, I don't care who's preaching. I don't care what man would be up here preaching. If he's reading the word of God and preaching the word of God faithfully, to me, that's never boring. I don't care what he's doing. I don't care if he's like Edwards. He's got his glasses on. He's reading. The word of God is going out. That's never boring. One should never, ever consider the word of God boring. And one thing's for sure, one should never make it that way. Never. There should always be application. There should always be the spirit of God, we pray, working in our hearts. We should never look at it from that viewpoint, ever. Ever. Why? I'm glad you asked. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Look what Paul says. Look what he does here. These glorious offices. Chapter 4, look at verse number 11. And he gave some apostles and some what? Prophets. That's right. Some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. All of these glorious offices within the local body that the Lord gives. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Do you see that there? That's why it's important that as we come together that the preacher is faithful in the word of God so that you might be edified. So that you might be worked upon by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, a mature man, that word means, unto the measure and the statue of the fullness of Christ. Look at verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about on every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Thereby they lie and wait to what? Deceive. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in what? In love. When you love someone, you will be truthful to them. 
you will indeed be faithful to it. When you love God, you will be faithful to his word. When you love one another, your brother, you will be faithful to them by, and, and you to me by correcting me with the word, by me correcting you with the word. That is what love is. Part of what love is, is being faithful in that. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in him in all things, which is the head even, Christ. Do you see how nice that is, brethren? That Paul would love those brothers so much that he would indeed instruct them as the Spirit of God lives in them to not quench the Spirit or despise the preaching of the Word. Again, brethren, so important as we consider this. In fact, I believe. That's why you'll carry me out of here with a hook or crook or whatever it might be. I believe the greatest preaching in all the earth is the captivating and prophetic, invigorating, Christ-honoring preaching and exposition. Brethren, a faithful man, (laughs) when the Bible tells a narrative, what should the faithful man do? He should tell the narrative. When the Bible speaks and talks about doctrine, what should the faithful man of God do? He should preach And teach what? The doctrine. The idea is being faithful to the text. It's being faithful to the word of God. Regardless of what men might have to say about it. This again is a glorious opportunity. Be faithful to the text. Look there if you would back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look what he says. Verses 20. 19, 20, 21, again, being tethered together. It's an amazing thing how God does this. Look at verse 21. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is what? Good. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Well, as I said, verse 21 is clearly tethered to verse 20. And Paul says that once we have put all things to the test, we should hold on fast to that which is good. Cling to, he says, in other words, and never let go. And the immediate, if you will, if you see the immediate uh, text here, the immediate word that we just got done preaching in the first verse, it is clearly the, the, the exercise that he's speaking of is preaching, prophetic preaching. That word prove means to test with a purpose of approval. We approve that which is said by way of what? The arbiter of truth. What's the arbiter of truth? Is it Pastor Mike? Is he the arbiter of truth? Or is it the word of God, which is what we've just been talking about? This is how you prove things. This is how you test things. It's a stunning thing, isn't it? In fact, it's an interesting thing. When one does not know the word of God very well. And we all are someplace, somewhere in our walk with Christ. Amen? Some of us are a little farther along. But it is interesting, and I want us to see this. The danger one has when you despise the preaching of the word. When you do not know the word of God very well. When you don't prove things by the word of God. 
I want you to look with me, if you would, again, an Old Testament passage. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13. And I want you to pay careful attention here. Many of us know, and I can ask the question, <laughs> in the Old Testament, when a prophet of God would come to the people, and he'd say, the Lord told me such and such and such and such, and it didn't happen. Again, let me just say that. And it did not happen. What were we to do? Uh, yeah. There was very little false prophesying in the Old Testament. <laughs> because if it wasn't really from God and you declare that God said this and he told me to tell you this and it didn't happen, you were out. There was very few false prophets in the Old Testament, I promise you. However, there's a deeper test. There's a deeper test where God is proving his people, where he's asking them to test themselves. And I want you to see here in Deuteronomy chapter 13, the opposite of that. We know that when someone would say, I come to you and the Lord told me this and it didn't happen, they were indeed put to death. But brethren, look at chapter 13, look at verse number one. Look what it says. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign of the wonder come to pass. Brethren, that's important. He's not talking about whether it doesn't come to pass. He says, and it does come to pass. Careful, listen. Wherefore he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other what? Other gods, which thou hast not known. Let us serve them. So in other words, what he's doing is, he's, he's telling us to test what's being said. The prophet comes, and yes, even if it happens, if it is outside of Scripture, if it's outside of what the Bible says, if it's outside of what God says, you must not follow no matter what. Look what he says. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God, what? Proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. Listen, and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. This is exactly what Paul is saying in our text. It is to cleave unto that which is good. Cleave unto the proper biblical preaching. That is what we're to cleave to. If a prophet comes and he, and, he, and he says something and it happens, but it leads you away from God outside of Scripture, then brethren, now you're to stone him. This is really discernment. We talk about it all the time. How do we discern it? How do we know? Well, if he comes and it doesn't happen, like many of some of these TV preachers have done over and over again, see, they would have been dead a long time ago. A long time ago. They wouldn't have been able to keep on deceiving and keep on deceiving and keep on lying and keep coming back and keep saying this nonsense over and over and the people are just in a funk and a fog and they're just sitting there, oh, listen to how good that is and none of it comes true, ever. It's amazing. They should be stoned. But what if a false prophet stands up and it does come true? What do we do, brethren? We look to the word of God. And we give it, as I call it, the test. When one prophesies or preaches, there is a glorious thing that we can do. We give it the test. <laughs> what the preacher declared, is it true? 
can it pass this test? First of all, the Savior test. The Savior test. Does it properly honor and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ for his personhood and for his finished work? That's the Savior test. I want to look at a couple of scriptures. Look at Hebrews chapter uh, 9, if you would, with me. Does what the preacher says, does it pass the Savior test? Is it about Christ? Is it about glorifying God? Is it about Christ's finished work? The Savior test. When one preaches, says he has a word from God, does it do this? And brethren, there are so many. Does the preacher say, there is no other name given under heaven by which one? must be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ, right? I mean, is he, is he Christ-centric? Is he so centered on Christ that that's all that's important? Does it pass the Savior test? Does it pass this one, his work, his finished work? Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse number 11. Look there, if you would, again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. But Christ being come and high priest of the good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, neither by some other gods, some other ways, some other work. Uh Uh-uh. But by his own what? Blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And you go on to read, it's finished once for all. Does it pass the Savior? test. When one is saying the Lord told me this or gave me this or whatever it might be, is it passing that first of all? Second of all, we've kind of looked at this to a degree, does it pass the scripture test? (laughs) The Savior's test? The scripture's test. Does it indeed, if you will, is the teaching consistent with the whole Bible's instruction and doctrine in this area? Does the teaching attempt at all to add to or take away from the word? Brethren, that is the scripture test. In fact, Isaiah warned the people of God about such men. That if it does not pass the scripture test, we know who they are. And again, I want you to hear the word of God concerning this so you don't think it's mean old Pastor Mike up here being mean and narrow-minded and fundamentalist, which you should be. Not mean, but certainly narrow-minded when it comes to these things, these tests. You should be too. Look at Isaiah chapter 8. Look at here. This is how we know. Isaiah chapter 8. And again, this is just, we'll, we'll zip along here. I need to zip along, but again, I want you to see this. Does it pass the Scripture test? Is it consistent with what the Scripture says? Do they attempt in any way to take away or add to the Word of God? Acts, or Isaiah chapter 8, look at verse number 20 there, if you will. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according, what? To this word. It is because there is no light in them. They're liars. They're cheaters. There's no light in them. If they're not preaching and speaking the things according to God's word, They have no light in them, and brethren, that's a great way to check it. Isn't that? When you're looking for a church, that's one of the first things I always look for. How does the man of God handle the word of God? 
Is it central? Is it important? Is it the most that we lean on? Not stories and, and all kinds of other whacked out things? No. This is what you must see. Does it pass the scripture test? How about, does it pass the spirit test? We got the, <laughs> isn't this glorious? I mean, it's just like a, like a nice little outline for us. The savior test, the scripture test, the spirit test. And again, this is important. You know that men today blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God, don't you? In so many ways. You know how they do it? They put words in his mouth. They ascribe very unholy things to him that he's not doing. <laughs> you know, things like holy puking. Yep. Things like putting dog collars on and holy barking and all, all this nonsense. That's blaspheming the Spirit of God. Ascribing that nonsense to him. So what is the Spirit's work? What is the general sense of the Spirit's work? What does he do? Well, I'm glad you asked. And again, we're going to read it right from Holy Scripture. Mike doesn't even have to stand up here and guess for you. Look at John chapter 16. Does it pass the Spirit test? Does it? That's the question. Look at John chapter 16. And again, this is something we must be very careful of. And I want us to notice, again, remember earlier on I said that the Spirit of God is a person. He's very personable. He lives inside of you if you're saved. And I want you to see here how the Lord Jesus describes him. Not only does he describe him, but he shows forth the work of the vicar of Christ. He who took the place of Christ when he ascended to heaven. What is the Spirit's work? Is it to make up all this nonsense? Is it to, to, to glorify self? Is it to do? No, none of that. And yet, that's the test. Does it pass the Spirit's test? Look at here quickly. Just again, one portion of Scripture. There are many. Look at verse number 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Notice the pronouns, him, him, personal. The Spirit of God is very personal. He's not out at a distance. Verse 8, and when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. <laughs> you want to see part of the work of the Spirit of God if it passed the Spirit test? His work is to what? To convince the world of sin. That's part of what he does. Clearly. And of righteousness and of Judgment. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you can think back to when you were saved. I don't know about you. I'm just going from how the Spirit worked in my life when he, was, when he was working on me. Oh, you want to know one of the things I was deeply afraid of? You want to know one thing that I feared greatly? Was God's judgment. Mm-hmm. God's judgment, his wrath, rests on those who are outside of Christ. And when the Spirit does his work, which he does, he convicts us and, and, and brings in the idea of God's judgment, which causes all kinds of holy things to happen. It causes unholy men to think about a holy God. It causes unholy men to then come to the holy God. This is what it does. 
verse 9, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Look at verse 13. Again, he gets very personal with the Spirit. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself. <laughs> there it is again, brethren. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all in perfect unity with one another. He doesn't speak of himself. Again, let me remind you of some of the nonsense that's being ascribed to the Spirit of God, and it's not him. It's drawing attention to them. The Spirit of God, if you give the Spirit test, will never do that. You know what he will do? Look what he will do. Look what it says. For he will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall what? Glorify me. Does the work of the Spirit, when we test the Spirit, is it something that glorifies Christ? Yes, that's a test. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. That is, again, brethren, a biblical test, a spirit test. And finally, I'll move along here. Finally, last but not least, is the saint's test. The saint's test. What have and what do other mature and godly students of Scripture say. Howard, how many times does one confer with some of these old dead guys? Many times. What I'm talking about is those who have looked at Scripture and wrote about Scripture and looked at the context and, and, and followed biblically through systematically and they're speaking the truth. Is it something that you and him agree with? That's the saint's test. In fact, the test is even better. And I want you to see this. Look at 2 Corinthians, and then we'll, we'll finish up. Look at 2 Corinthians, if you will, chapter 13. And as we read this text, I want to remind you of the context of the text. You have to consider, brethren, as Paul writes this, as he says this, as he tells them to do this, that he's spent over two years of his life with these people. He's been there for two years already. The church where people have indeed confessed Christ, he's seen that. For two years he's been there. He's seen men and women make confessions and professions of faith. A church where men and women have been baptized. Mm-hmm. Two years, he's seen the word. He's seen this stuff go on in this church. Amazing. A church where they've been through and taught a lot by Paul. Paul was their preacher. He was their teacher. He was their prophet. He was their evangelist. The apostle Paul himself. I want you to consider this. And by the time we get to chapter 13 here, do you realize that Paul has written 29 chapters to that church in 1st and 2nd Corinthians? Do you realize how well he knows the people that are in this church? Two years, baptized some of them, preached to them, saw them trust in Christ, all of these things. 
And he says this to them, and I'm saying this to you. As Paul loved them, so I love you. Look there, if you would, at verse number 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, look at verse number 3. Again, keeping in mind how well Paul knew these brothers and sisters. He says, Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by power by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Look at verse 5. Examine yourselves. Mm-hmm. Paul, again, who knows these brothers like the back of his hand, what does he tell them? Examine yourself. In fact, that word examine literally means to scrutinize. Scrutinize yourself. That's the kind of love he had for the brothers there, who he knew. He says to examine yourselves, whether you be what? In the faith. (laughs) Now, you don't examine yourself next to me. You don't examine yourself next to Isaac or next to anyone else. How how does one examine themselves? How do we prove ourselves? Look what it says. Prove your own selves. Know ye not that your own selves, how that, Jesus Christ, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. One of the ways, one of the tests, one of the proving grounds, when one considers this, is to look at the word of God and to scrutinize oneself to look and to prove and to test oneself. This is what the scripture teaches. Now, Paul Washer got thrown out out of a church. There was five or 6,000 people there. In fact, he said before he preached the sermon, you probably won't invite me back, and he wasn't invited back because he said this very thing to them, something their pastor would not say. This is the idea here, brethren. This is the gloriousness of being a faithful word, a faithful man in the word, a faithful church in the word, a faithful Christian in the word. One who follows through and gives these tests. Paul tells them in verse 22 to abstain, to refrain deliberately. And I've, gotta, I've really got to finish this up. I think I might even just stop here. Paul tells them in verse 22, let's just read that together. He says to them, and I want us just to leave with this thought. Look at verse number 22. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verse number 22. Abstain from all appearances of evil. And again, brethren, the idea here is to hold oneself back. To keep oneself back deliberately. It's an amazing thing. The appearances that he's talking about, and we have to end, something that strikes the eye, something that can be seen. It's amazing. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, brethren, let me just say this. We know that evil comes in all sorts of sizes and shapes and forms. It is indeed a complex enemy. Evil is a complex enemy. You know why it's so complex? I'm glad you asked. Something 
that may be especially attractive in the form of evil to you may not be to me. And something that is attractive to me in an evil way may not be to you. This is what's so cunning about it. It's an amazing thing. Where I am weak, you are strong. And where you are weak, I am strong. And this is what Paul is saying. To abstain from it, to remove yourself back. In fact, really, to flee from it. He already told him in chapter 4 to abstain from fornication. To flee from that. This is the will of God for you. To abstain from those sorts of things. This is what he's saying again. In fact... As one pastor said, evil knows you from your shoe size to your hat size. Yes, it does. It regularly sizes you up that it might catch you off guard and knock you out. Now again, brethren, in context here, I believe that Paul is specifically speaking, although abstaining from evil is throughout Scripture, but here specifically, he's telling the brethren to abstain, to uh, Stay away from, if you will, to keep ourselves from foul doctrine. Remember the prophesying, the preaching, that's what he's concerned about in our text. We are to keep ourselves away from foul doctrine and keep ourselves away from these evil things because of what they bring. We should not play with or get near any sort of evil teaching, period. Again, because it knows us all so well. Let me just finish this. Look there at verse 23. We'll read 23 to the end as a group because it's a prayer. Paul here closes all of this glorious book with a prayer to the brothers. Look there, if you would, at verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you. What? Holy. Listen, and I pray God your whole spirit soul, and body. Don't let the order of what Paul just said there miss you. It's funny, isn't it? Now let me say this. <laughs> I got to quit, but listen. Anybody have any idea how much Americans spend on makeup every year? Any idea at all? Let me give it to you. Three billion dollars. Three billion dollars. In fact, my wife's not here so I can tell on her. I looked in her little makeup cupboard, whoosh, slid it open there, and <laughs> one of them in a little bottle, it said, hope in a bottle. <laughs> Sorry, honey, if you're watching. Do you notice the order? What Americans, what we do, brethren, is we switch that order. Now listen, there's nothing wrong. I enjoy having a pretty wife. You enjoy having a pretty girlfriend. Uh, we all enjoy that. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying don't put makeup on, okay? That'll be the next thing I'm going to hear. Oh, Pastor Mike says we shouldn't wear makeup. No. What I'm saying is to have the order right. You notice it isn't body, soul, and spirit. Body's at the end. You know why? Because if you're young now, you'll soon look like this. Before you can bat an eye, you're going to look like this. Paul says that God, in his good order, he 
it in fact sanctifies you wholly. He sets you apart wholly. Soul, spirit, and body. What a glorious thing in a way for Paul to close. He invokes God all the way to the end. You know why he's invoking God all the way to the end? All the way through his prayer he invokes God because it's impossible for you and I to accomplish that which he has just said without the Spirit of God. Period. Even at that, you and I, we're going to be scratching, we're going to be irritating, we're going to be doing some things all along the way. But again, God's grace. God, who is our peace, will sanctify and preserve us. He puts everything in order, as I said, our spirits, our souls, and our bodies. We like to do it backwards, but that's not what Paul does. Put things in correct, proper order. Amen? You don't know. You may get in a car wreck today, and you better pray to the Lord that the husband or the wife that you have is deeper than looking at you. You better pray that they are. Or they'll be gone like the world. <laughs> I'll stay with you until I get a better deal. I'll stay with you as long as you keep yourself. I mean, in the IFB churches, you hear this nonsense all the time. The woman, when she gets married, should stay that way. What about you, buddy? Look in the mirror, clown face. Seriously. Nonsense. You better pray, though, that your husband or wife has this order right. Soul, spirit, and body. Amen? God, indeed, as we close, made his peace with us initially by sending his son to die on the cross. That, that's, that's what Paul is saying. The God of peace sanctify you and whole, make you whole, holy and completely. He is indeed in the process of making peace with us daily as we depend on him to overcome the sin in our lives. And that's really important as we consider our text. He is again, his grace, his mercy is just shown forth to all of us. I'll leave here today and I'll irritate, I'll itch, I'll scratch. I will. But brethren, think of this for a moment as we close. He will ultimately make his peace with us by eradicating any sin in our lives in our eternal state. Sanctification for us is the will of God, and sanctification for us is the work of God. One of the things that we've seen. Understanding, brethren, as we close, the principles of God is one thing, but the power to live them out is another we do not find this power in ourselves, but in God himself. Ultimately, in the end, as Paul closed, this is what he's saying. Do this until the Lord comes, until he comes again. God is indeed, brethren, as we consider this, the source of our sanctification, because he does indeed do it wholly, spirit, soul, and body. Let's pray. Fathers, we have concluded this letter this morning. As we consider even what Paul said as he closed in this letter that they should have this read to the other churches. <laughs> Again, we have no idea what that was like. 
We see in Scripture over and over again where they're told, hey, read this letter and send it to the next church. Read this letter. We have the letter right here all in the canon of Scripture. All together. And we thank you, Lord, even as we, Lord willing, begin 2 Thessalonians. We thank you that we have it because he says the same thing at the end of that letter. When you're done reading this, send it off to the other churches. Let them read it as well. Let them hear it. Let them be changed by it. The book of Colossians, I mean, over and over. There's even a letter I read it. The, re- the letter to the Laodiceans, I have it at home on my computer. I've, I've read it. He, he even asked them, hey, have them read this thing. It's not in canon for various reasons. But that's how they did it. They passed it around, and here we are, rich in the Word of God, deep in the depths of it, having it available to us every second so easily, and yet, unfortunately, many have no idea what it even says. So, Father, we pray that as we close here, that today you took a portion by the Spirit of God of this Word, and you steeped it deep down inside of us. Again, we're all in different places. The Spirit of God knows where we're at. May He use portions of this and distribute it as He wills into our hearts that the believer might be edified. We pray also for the lost sheep this morning who may be sitting and hearing and they have no inclination at this point Or maybe you are drawing them a little here and there. Maybe they're just sitting there despising the word of God, having no idea that in your glorious plan that the sovereign spirit of God will soon come to them. He will regenerate them. He will take out that heart of stone and put in that heart of flesh that they might look at the word of God and see it for what it is. They might be saved. They might believe in the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. Oh, Father, we pray. We pray that you might use us in some way as the Spirit gives us unction and speaks to us that we might obey and be obedient to that. Help us, Lord, by your grace, by your mercy to do so. We thank you now and pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.